This lecture is about errors in hospitals that kill or injure patients and that could have been prevented. Uh, health professionals call, call them preventable adverse events. And an unknown fraction of those are caused in part by badly designed computer systems. Although usually the nurses and the doctors get blamed, which makes them a further victim of, of the error. You get two of us talking today because we want to talk about different aspects and different solutions. Harold is uh, an expert in human-computer interfaces and a computer scientist. Uh, I'm a specialist in cybersecurity these days and a computer scientist. And you get a, an enormous transcript today, a, a paper that we've written jointly between us which runs to, to well over 20 pages. Uh, which gives you much more detail than we can possibly pack in today and contains all the references that you could possibly need if you want to follow up where on earth we got our surprising facts from. So I'd like to start by looking at the scale of the problem. There was a, a study in uh, 2013 of uh, avoidable deaths in American hospitals. And... It came up with uh, an enormous number, 440,000 avoidable deaths in American healthcare. If you scale that by taking the American population and, and uh, scaling it by, by the UK population and make the assumption that the number of avoidable deaths in healthcare will be the same in proportion uh, in the two countries. Um, that would mean that there are 88,000 avoidable deaths in the NHS every year. Now, that's much higher than the official NHS figures, uh, and we'll explain, firstly, what the NHS figures are and, and why there is that difference in, in just a moment. As a comparison, just, just to scale those numbers, in 2013... Um, 1,713 people were killed on UK roads. So it's a much bigger potential issue, if you believe our numbers, than, than road, road deaths and injuries. Now, these are the top causes of death in, in America. And the, the base figure here suggests that 8.1% that of uh, American uh, death, deaths in America are actually caused by preventable accidents in hospitals. And if you then add in the likely under-reporting, you, you get up to uh, about twice that figure, which puts that scale, that number, up alongside um, the, the, the major causes of death of, of cancer and heart disease. So it's, it's that sort of scale of... Um, of fatality that, that we're talking about. And these are the, the sort of things that are, that are killing people. It's you know, delayed treatment, wrong treatment, um, no treatment when there should have been treatment, errors of communication leading to um, the wrong things happening for one reason or another, like, like an operation on the wrong, wrong site, the wrong part of the body, um, errors of context, dis discharging people into, into circumstances where they can't look after themselves effectively and then, and then die because you, you weren't aware of the context, and so on. And, of course, diagnostic errors and, and patient monitoring errors. And here are the NHS figures for 
uh, preventable deaths and injuries. Uh, in the 12 months, the most recent reporting year, the 12 months to, to June 2017, nearly 2 million incidents were reported to the NHS, of which 10,800 resulted in serious in death or serious permanent injury to the patient. So it's, that's a, a lot, but it's about half the number of people who are killed or seriously injured on, on the roads in the UK. Now, those are big numbers. They, they cause quite a lot of trauma. And, and, and there are lots of reasons why those uh, numbers could easily be underreported. Um, people don't, in general, um, like to admit errors, for example. So there are, there are a whole range of reasons why, why those numbers can easily be underreported. If you look at the numbers from, from the point of view of the negligence claims, then um, there are this number, 10,600 10, neg negligence claims. They've doubled in, in uh, the last 10 years. It's costing the NHS £1.6 billion a year. The National Audit Office expects that to uh, increase again, to, to double again by, by 2020. Um, and the NHS has set aside £60 billion pounds for, for future claims. They've made that, that provision in their accounts. And probably only a, a fraction of people who are injured actually claim. We can think of a, a lot of reasons why, why people wouldn't want to claim. Now, we want to talk about the computer-related ones because we are computer people. We're, we're computer experts. We're not saying that, that the other causes of, of death and injury aren't important. Of course they are. But some proportion of them are caused by faulty computer systems, and, and those are the ones that we want to look at today. And a, a typical NHS trust has a huge number of computer systems, as, as you can see on the screen, most of these systems have got safety implications. Um, almost all of them are going to be vulnerable to cyber attack because of uh, vulnerabilities in the software and because so very many computer systems are networked in one way or another to another system that is vulnerable to, to cyber attack or they're actually directly online. And WannaCry, the, the ransomware that hit the NHS, is a... A real wake-up call in, in this area. And it, it affected a very large number of NHS trusts. And um, a lot of, of GP surgeries. It caused enormous disruption to the NHS. And it wasn't designed to kill, luckily. But it could have been. Uh, if, if WannaCry had been designed to, let us say, tamper with medical records in a way that was safety critical and not to announce itself for a ransomware screen, but to sit quietly in the background making these sorts of changes to records until a number of backup cycles had been run, the NHS wouldn't have had backup clean records to go back to when they finally realised why it was that they were were getting um, patient 
um, illnesses and fatalities because there were uh, in, incorrect data about blood types, about allergies, about uh, the, the drugs that people were taking and so on. So if that attack had been designed as a cyber attack on the NHS to do real harm, it had the power to do that because if you can read data and encrypt it and write it back, you can read data and change it in any other way you choose to and write it back. And a lot of NHS data is, is heavily structured, so it's easy to find the things that you might want to change. Badly designed computer systems can lead to any of those causes of, of adverse events that, that we were talking about earlier. And, and so it's quite interesting to think what proportion of those adverse events are actually likely to be being caused by computer system um, problems by, by badly designed or failing computer systems. And if you look at the published literature, as, as we have, you see um, figures published that, that range from 0.2% of, uh, of errors being traced back to computer systems up to 25%. In one study, 25% of, of medication errors were, in fact, uh, caused by, by de defects in the computer systems that were being used. If you very conservatively assume that just 1% of the adverse events are in fact being caused by computer systems, and we'll talk about some of the mechanisms, Harold will talk about some of the mechanisms in a moment, that would imply over 100 deaths and serious injuries caused by computer systems every year, just 1%, and a, a large proportion, you know, a, a large amount of money, 16 million of the of the um, liability and a lot of trauma to patients and families and of course to the staff who are being wrongly blamed for making mistakes when perhaps they've been trapped into a mistake by a badly designed computer system that made it very easy to make an error and very difficult to spot it. So that's where you get to with 1% and we think that that number will be actually, realistically, if the research is done, it will turn out to be much higher. Harold. Thank you. Yeah. So, what, what is the problem? Everybody thinks computers are part of the solution. So computers are enthusiastically bought without people checking them for bugs and checking that they're safe. Everything else in the NHS has to be evidence-based. Computers are not evidence-based. The current excitement about going paperless. Where is the evidence that going paperless helps? Well, there's a huge difference between programmers and people in the NHS. People in the NHS, and particularly this winter, they're working under extreme pressure and they've got seconds to make life-critical decisions. Whereas programmers, who are building the systems that the NHS are using have got years to sort out good design of those systems. There's a huge asymmetry there. Also, as I'll show you in a moment, programmers have got the tools that could sort out bugs in their systems. So the bugs, they've got a long time to do it, they've got powerful tools to help them. It could be a lot better. And bugs, one bug in an infusion pump can kill everybody who's using that infusion pump. Whereas if you look at, uh, say, the anaesthetist using the infusion pump, uh, at least they can only kill one person at a time. So the 
obligation on programmers is hugely higher than on staff to be safe. Here are some concrete examples. Last week, Martin and I thought we would explore reporting an incident to the national reporting system. And these are some screens we got from the website. So, report a patient safety incident, and we're the public. We're going to report here. You click on that, and you then get carried to the National Patient Safety Agency, which I think shut in 2012. And there's a list of uh, things you have to agree to, so I accept those agreements, and that's the next screen. Right. This is perhaps one reason why there aren't many patient safety events reported. This is a completely understandable bug, right? It's a complicated website and everything else, but computers can, in a second, check whether everything is there. The system should have known that there were pages missing or the link was wrong. And relying on people to work these things out is not the way to do it. There are tools that can find problems like this automatically. And, of course, we were unable to report the problem with the system because the system wasn't working. Let's say we want to enter a number into a computer system. This is an extremely common fundamental thing in healthcare. What drug dose does somebody need? What's their weight? What's their height? What's their age? I want to enter a number. So I want to enter 28.2. And there are two ways of doing it. You can have a numeric keypad like this, which you're familiar with, or you could have up-down keys. So the numeric keypad, you press the digits of the number you want, and the up-down keys, you adjust the number until it's what you want. There's an interesting difference between these two types of user interface and unnoticed error. If a nurse makes an error they notice, they can correct it. If they make an unnoticed error, then they're going to have to wait until you start arresting or whatever goes wrong with the unnoticed error. When you use a digit keypad, the rate of unnoticed errors is about 3.5%. You might think that's rather high, but that's because you don't notice what errors you're making yourself. That's what we found in our labs when we got people, nurses, to enter numbers into uh, hospital systems. If you use the up-down keys, the error rate is about half. And we know why, and that's an interesting story. But the ratio is about two. That means about half the people that are killed on numeric user interfaces are killed by bad design, bad procurement, bad choice of user interfaces. There's another very interesting aspect of this. Digit keys are usually badly implemented, whereas up-down keys are very easy to implement. You just increase a number or decrease a number until it hits the limits, whereas numeric keys, you have to parse a number, you have to know whether there's a decimal point or two decimal points, you have to decide what to do with two decimal points, and so on. And it turns out many digit key user interfaces have bugs as well as the user interface problem that they're harder to notice the bugs as well. QRISC is a calculator for cardiovascular uh, disease assessment. GPs use it a lot. You go in and they fill in your data into QRISC and they might say, oh, you need statins or you don't need statins. 2016, QRISC hit the news. Uh, up to 270,000 patients were affected according to, to this news bulletin. So in 2016, I was interested in QRISC. It's a risk calculator, and it has a numeric user interface using a decimal keypad like this. 
So I tried it in October 2016, and just for fun, I entered rubbish as my height and weight. Okay, you can see I've entered rubbish. Now, a bug in QRISC ignored that rubbish and treated them as random numbers, and it gave me results. My risk of having a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years is 10%. And I've published this and I've told QRISC, and I thought I should try it out, and I tried it out two days ago. So in February 2018, you can still enter rubbish, which is bizarre, but it won't give you a cardiovascular risk. It tells you that you should enter integers within these limits. So there was a bug that affected lots of people. In fact, the QRIS bug turned out to be more interesting than the one that I'm showing you. This is a bug I found within minutes, and it's a bug that should not have been there. The other QRIS bug that was actually causing the problems for the 270,000 patients was there are about 15 parameters in QRISC, so I've only got five fingers, but they had permuted them. So the GP entered data and it got muddled up and the algorithm didn't do any validation, so it gave wrong results. So that's QRISC. It's a positive story, I think. How about this? This is the typical thing that happens when something goes wrong. Mother of four dies after a blundering nurse administers a ten times drug overdose. We victimise the nurse and probably sack them and send them to prison or whatever, rather than looking at the systemic reasons why these things happen. Nurses don't turn into witches for a second. That doesn't make sense. It is an accident that, in this case, I think was induced by bad design. So if you go further down this article to here, instead of pressing 10 mils per hour, the nurse admitted tapping 100 mils per hour. And from my lab studies, we know that is really easy to do by mistake. Why does the infusion pump allow you to enter a 10 times overdose, which in this case is potassium chloride, and it will be a fatal dose, which is what happened. The thing could have, could have detected that. No error was found with the infusion pump, and the investigators ruled the death was due to the nurse's human error. Just because the investigators found no bugs with the infusion pump doesn't mean it's bug-free. And then a trust action plan after the death saw new infusion pumps and software that reduced the risk of error brought into all wards. That raises a very interesting question. Why didn't they bring in the safer infusion pumps before somebody had to die? And how do they know which are the safer infusion pumps? They might Actually, they might just have got more modern infusion pumps. In my view... A large part of this story happened because the infusion pump the nurse was using had got design faults and bugs in it, which only came to light when somebody died, and then this is what, what happens. As Martin has said, we've got the notes for the lecture that gives you lots of details, and I'd like to draw your attention to one of the papers we cite, happens to be one I wrote with, uh, with Paul Cairns, about interactive numerals, and this will convince you that these problems with number entry user interfaces are ubiquitous and they affect almost everything. And it would be something that would be relatively easy to fix. And I'm now going to hand back to Martin. I've come to the conclusion that the way that healthcare computing is regulated really isn't fit for purpose. 
And 30 years ago, there was a, a well-known, at least to computer scientists, uh, error in the software of the Ferrock 25 radiotherapy system. And um, a number of patients were, were badly injured, some killed as a consequence of a, of a massive overdose by, by that um, radiotherapy system. And, and the software was analysed in, in detail and the kind of programming errors that occurred and the quality of the software have been widely reported and there have been a number of academic papers about it. I've no evidence, and indeed I've, I've evidence to the contrary, I don't think that, that um, programming standards, the quality of programming of medical equipment has improved markedly in the 30 years since then. Most assurance, this is a theme I've, I've been banging away at for all of the lectures I've given, most assurance is done by testing. And we know from empirical studies, from academic papers, that even heroic amounts of testing cannot find all the bugs in, in a, a piece of complex software. And all software is, is complex, most of it unnecessarily so, but nevertheless... Um, the kind of software that you get in medical applications is complex. And typically, even with heroic amounts of testing, you're only going to find half the defects in, in the software. Uh, and people don't do heroic amounts of testing. You know, I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking you know, maybe person years of testing of a system by, by heroic amounts. The sort of testing... Uh, um, quality that goes into some of the avionics software that controls safety critical systems in aircraft, for example, where they mandate huge amounts of testing as part of the certification process. You don't, you don't get that. It's not required in, in medical applications. Usability uh, is rarely, if ever, tested at all. So the kind of experiments that Harold was just describing don't get carried out to rate the usability of, of medical equipment, or at least if they are carried out, I haven't found any evidence that, that they are, and, and I guess nor is, as Harold, otherwise he would have mentioned it to me, he's shaking his head, so I feel relieved about that. Most assurance on medical devices is done by the manufacturer. It's the way that the regulation works. The manufacturer is responsible for testing the system because... Everybody uses the word testing when what they really are talking about is assurance or verification or validation. Um, but they assume that testing is the right way to do it, and it never is. Most assurance is done by, by the manufacturer. They write it up and they pr present a, a dossier of documentation to the body that provides them with CE certification in the European Union or... Uh, FDA certification in America and there's cross re recognition between these various regimes and, and with other countries um, so that when something's been approved by one regulator it can be used in, in another territory. Uh, the FDA admits and, and has said in, um, in we, we have reference in the, in the transcript you can see that they don't conduct pre-market testing for medical products. Testing is the responsibility of the manufacturer. Even where it's highly safety critical medical devices and 
and the regulations actually require a safety case to be written, that gets assessed by somebody working for, for the um, nominated body that is, is issuing the safety certificate. But they only assess the documentation. They, they, don't, they are not funded to look at the actual device and to do any real analysis on, on the device. It would be much, much more expensive. Um, the, the regulator in the UK is responsible for 500,000 medical devices, everything from walking sticks through to um, complex medical equipment, defibrillators and, and artificial kidneys and so on. So uh, it, there is an, an enormous challenge. I'm not, I'm not accusing the regulator of, of incompetence in this way, simply that the process clearly cannot deliver what is required. And what is required? Well, my the place I always look is the Health and Safety at Work Act because it's the law of the land and it seems to be being quite effective in a number of work-related activities. And clearly healthcare is a work-related activity. The people who are, who are carrying out the work are workers, they're, they're employees. So the people who are running the, the trusts are employers. It's, it's a work environment. And... Section 3 of the Health and Safety at Work Act um, talks about the duty that people running any enterprise, any employer, the duty that they have to people not in their employment. Um, section 2 talks about the duty they have to their employees and to their health and safety. Section 3 talks about the duty they have to make sure that the way they're running their business doesn't harm anybody who isn't their employee. And they have to reduce those risks as low as reasonably practicable. I'll come back to that phrase in a moment. There's, there's also a, a further section, section six, which says that anybody supplying um, any kind of equipment for use in a work environment has to ensure that the risks to health and safety that it presents are reduced as low as reasonably practicable and, and that they should carry out the necessary research to ensure that that is done. Now, what do we mean by as low as reasonably practicable? It's, it's a phrase that has been interpreted by the courts. And the way it's been interpreted is that you have to balance the reduction in risk that you would get by doing more risk reduction against the cost of doing that extra risk reduction. And only if the cost is grossly disproportionate to the benefit that you achieve, are you able to say you have already reduced the risk as low as reasonably practicable? We don't believe that the current regulations are achieving anything like that. We don't believe they've been designed to achieve that. So I, I just ask the question, who's actually enforcing the law in this area? Back to you. Martin mentioned the apparently insuperable problem of regulating 500,000 medical devices. Well, if we want to regulate things, it's not difficult. How many cars are there? And they're all regulated. There are millions. How many white goods are there? There are billions, probably. And they're all assured to be electrically safe. If we want to make something safe, because life depends on your fridge not exploding, there are regulations to make sure it's unlikely to explode. We could regulate medical software if we wanted to. 
This is a classic photograph of the Piper Alpha disaster in 1988. It's horrific. Uh, 167 people died. This is a photograph of the Labrador Grove train disaster just outside Paddington in 1999. Uh, again, it's tragic. 31 people died. And then more recently, last year, this is Grenfell Tower, and tragically, 71 people died. These are photographs, in fact, from Imperial College's trust, NHS trust. These are just photographs I stole off the web. And I put stars on the computers I can see. And, of course, there are thousands of computers inside the hospitals that you can't see. So 2018 UK hospitals, we're estimating, and we're very clear that these are conservative estimates, 100 to 900 computer-related deaths a year. So if I compare them, Piper Alpha, 167 deaths, and there was a public inquiry. Ladbroke Grove, 31 deaths, and there was a public inquiry. Grenfell, 71 deaths, and there was a public inquiry. Computer bugs in hospitals, and we think this is an underestimate. Per year, there are 100 to 900 a year. And nothing's happening. Imagine the NHS was prescribing a drug that comes in a red pill and a blue pill form. Like the um, numeric keypad and the up-down keypad. These are two different systems that are doing the same thing. They're two different drugs, a red drug and a blue drug, that are doing the same thing. But they're unregulated. So hospitals will tend to buy the cheaper ones. But the blue pill... It's twice as dangerous. And the blue pill's got more side effects. It's got more bugs. It interacts with other drugs. It's not, in the computer science term, it's not interoperable with the other systems in the hospital. And it was brought in by the hospital with negligible evaluation. It's an exciting blue pill. If this is what was going on in the NHS, there would be an outcry. And isn't that what we've been saying is going on with computer bugs in the NHS? We've got computer systems that are red and blue pills, and nobody has a clue which is better. They're poorly regulated. They're, some of them are more dangerous than others, and so on. What do we need? We need better regulation. We need more research. We need better programming. We need more skills in the industry to build safer systems. We need more awareness and procurement of the quality of software so that procurers buy better systems. We must insist on liability. The law at the moment is essentially that medical device manufacturers are not liable for problems that have been missed by the regulation. If something is CE marked, then it is the nurse's or doctor's fault if something goes wrong. And in a, in a culture like that, there's no reason why manufacturers should make safer systems. And, in fact, I think it's fair to say they've got to a point where they're unable to make safer systems. So you can't just change the law tonight. We've got to have a transition period. And we should be insisting that hospitals want evidence that the systems they're buying are safer. And they should ask manufacturers, can you prove the system is safer than that system? 
We've given you transcripts that give you a lot of background material. And when we planned this lecture, we believed that having a discussion with you would be a much better way of using our time. So it's now over to you for your, your ideas and questions. What are you going to do about it? So I hope, I hope that surprised you. It certainly surprised us when we, when we dug into the numbers. You know, that, that even on the lower estimates that we put up, based on the NHS's own figures and, and a very conservative assumption about the role of computers, there's a significant problem here that needs to be tackled. So we hope that we've surprised you and that you agree with us that something ought to be done about it. But questions? Hi, thanks for the lecture. Um, we're looking for an evidence base on selecting IT systems in healthcare according to the presentation here. And that sounds like doing an A-B comparison between two different systems, as you pointed out, digit entry being an archetypal example. But shouldn't actually the comparison between, be between the computer system, which may be flawed, and no computer system, which is the situation we had without that manufacturer? And how does that feed into your research? So I suppose my question is, are they helping, are they helping against not having them? And therefore, the hindrance is just a side effect that you would have been outweighed by not having that system in the first place. Well, the answer to all of those questions is, at the moment, pretty much we don't know. People are rushing into computerised you know, um, tablets. Uh, I mean, when I say tablets, I mean iPad-type tablets. Um, <laughs> tablets are exciting, so let's have tablets. But wh where is the evidence that those are better than the paper-based systems? Um, I've got some paper here. If I drop it, it'll still work. Um, if I get body fluids on it, it'll still work. If I walk out of Wi-Fi, it'll still work. If the batteries go flat, well, it doesn't have batteries, right? This is very reliable stuff. And yet the NHS is rushing to go paperless and it is replacing it with stuff that we don't know is as reliable. And the paper does have problems. I can lose it and put it in a filing cabinet in Capita and it gets lost. Uh, electronic stuff can get lost in exactly the same way. So we don't know. Nobody's asking those questions. So the research, you're right, needs to firstly establish the, the baseline before introducing new systems and then... To, to show that introducing new systems would make things better. And it's quite a complex task. I, I was involved in a, a research programme led out of, of Newcastle University a few years back. And one of the systems that, that was studied by that research was a, uh, a system to help radiographers read mammograms, breast cancer scans. And, and what they discovered, the manufacturer said, this is, this is just a guidance system, the... the a radiographer reads the scan, the system reads the scan, the radiographer looks at what the system's found and, and makes a decision. So it's merely advisory. Um, it will pick up some things that the radiographer has perhaps missed and make, make them look more closely. When a properly evaluated study was done, it turned out that the system made um, not very good radiographers significantly better but it made expert radiographers significantly worse. And the reason for that was that where the expert radiographer was unsure and would have recalled the patient for another scan, 
if the computer system didn't pick up the thing that they were unsure about and flag it as something that, that needed investigation, they didn't recall the patient. So you have a system which looks as though it's just advisory, but is in fact having a significant effect on the health and, and in fact the fatality rate of patients who are being treated. So yes, we do need to do the studies and to get the evidence. It will take research. Nobody's interested, as far as we can see, in funding the, the really fundamental research so that we can pick up things like the number entry issue of which there will be lots and make sure that that, that information is, is implemented in new systems so that we are building safer systems in the future. Mm. We're, we're a bit hamstrung. We're giving a public lecture. But both of us know lots of stories where particular devices have harmed or killed people. Some of these are public knowledge, and a lot of them we come across because we're doing research. Um, Martin mentioned the Therac 25, which was a clinical linear accelerator for radiotherapy, and it killed people, and that's public knowledge. Less well-known is, about 20 years later, the Panama incident. It's described in our notes. Uh, Olivia Saldana was a radiotherapist, and when you do radiotherapy, you have to do a calculation on the computer. Uh, there's an X-ray beam going to... You know, let's uh, give Martin some X-rays here. And you have a collimator to make the X-ray beam the right shape to do the appropriate clinical job. Olivia Saldana drew the shape of the collimator on her computer's system, and then the computer works out how much radiation to go, because some of it's absorbed in the collimator and so on. It's complicated. She drew the shape in the wrong direction. I mean, in the wrong direction. And the computer calculated the wrong results, and quite a lot of people were killed, and she went, and pr went to prison. But it's a software bug, because the shape of the hole is the same, whether you draw it this way or that way. That's something we know about, and because both of us are aware of a lot of little stories like this, and we know things like the number entry problems are ubiquitous, we believe these things are much more common than the world thinks. Just to just give you some reassurance, the company that made the Therac 25 decided that after all the, the bad publicity that they really ought to get out of that business. So they, were, they, they, they went back into uh, designing nuclear reactors. <laughs> oh. I, I heard Jeremy Hunt say something which uh, I thought was quite insightful. He said, if you're going to have a hip implant, you would spend a while wondering about which surgeon you're going to use. Whereas when you fly to New York, you don't worry about which pilot you're going to fly with because pilots are trained to a high, consistent standard. They'll go on human factors courses and everything else. And I, I tried to interrupt and say, nor do you worry whether it's Boeing, McDonnell Douglas or Airbus who made the aeroplane because they're all airworthy. There isn't a factor of two in the safety of aircraft. And it takes a long time to certify an aircraft as airworthy. Whereas if I want to make a medical device, I can start shipping it this afternoon, basically. It's a completely different culture. Yeah. Okay, so um, when you're talking about updating you know, systems, and recently I thought the NHS went through a very expensive 
overhaul of its system, and it's got a spine or something, yep. so that everybody's yep. supposed to be sharing information. I mean, surely this is cost a huge amount of money, first of all, and it must have diminished, if anything, any complications or problems. Otherwise, that surely that's the company's held responsible for what's happening if there's big yeah, problems going on. This was a... Uh, I mean, that's a bit... I don't know. I don't know why we need to think about spending more. Why isn't what we've got adequate? <laughs> that, that's another, another whole lecture with Harold and I were, were involved in, um, in the Connecting for Health fiasco, which, uh, which certainly, by the time it was cancelled, had cost the country... Um, over 10 billion pounds, and, and on some estimates up to 30 billion. Um, we, we tried to persuade the, uh, the Health Select Committee to, to stop the programme and, and have a, a constructive expert independent review of, of what they were trying to do and whether they were ever likely to succeed. Um, but unfortunately, we failed to persuade them after, after a lot of... Um, different interactions with the Department of Health um, and we never got our review and, and it was some years afterwards that they finally cancelled that, that programme. Uh, and it left behind some, some benefits in, including much, much better um, uh, internet connectivity but it, it certainly didn't ever recover the, um, the value that spending that vast amount of money um, the kind of benefits it should have brought. And meanwhile, there was a, a big planning blight on trusts introducing much better systems within individual trusts. So it, it, caused, it caused a lot of damage, that exercise. Um, so, yes, we did spend a lot of money, but we didn't get good value from it, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, programming is very easy. Children can do it. Safe programming is very difficult and very few people can do it. Right? It's extremely difficult to write reliable programs. And the problem we've got is, in the NHS, it's very hard to tell the difference between something that looks good and something that is good. There's no regulation that forces that to happen. And procurement gets excited with, you know, it's, a, it's an iPad or something, it must be good because it's new and exciting. But is it actually good? We don't know. So the answer to your question, why should we spend more money, if... If the marketplace can't tell the difference between good and bad stuff, it goes to the bottom. So you end up buying, as it, let's say if you bought a bad car, it's a bad car. And then you're asking, why should I spend more money to get a good car? Well, it's obvious, you bought a bad car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think part of the problem is that society, human race as a whole, is besotted by gadgets. Mm. 20 years ago, if you wanted to get your weight... You stood on some sort of thing that just worked on gravity, or balance, or foot, 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 fo
National Physical Laboratory used to um, um, provide standardization for, for scales and, uh, and test them and, and certify that they, that they worked uh, because they, they got all the standard weights you know, they, they, as the national regulator. Um, and then they came across uh, a, a set of scales for the first time that had a microprocessor in, in it and, and which gave erratic results. And at that point, they realised they couldn't certify scales anymore if they'd got microprocessors in. There, there wasn't a mechanism that would enable them to do that. So your, your example is exactly right. Yeah. And then one up there. Make matters worse, NHS is actually collaborating with IT companies like Google, DeepMind, and IBM to develop machine learning and artificial intelligence to help doctors with uh, diagnosis and eventual treatments. And uh, I'm afraid that at some points, these machine learning and AI systems will actually start to replace doctors. And as they are used more and more, they will start to de-skill the next generation of doctors. So the, the future doesn't look any good. Hmm. Almost all of the exciting innovations we hear about, like Google and so on, they're aiming at specific diseases. So if they work, they'll only help a few people. And, of course, you know, the, we, we live in a capitalist world. They will sell stuff and make lots of money out of it. If we do research in reducing computer bugs, everything will benefit. Any disease will benefit, any patient will benefit, staff will benefit, and litigation will go down. But it will cost manufacturers a bit more to make safer stuff. So your example of Google is an example of how excited we are because we live in a consumer society, we want to buy the next big thing. And the NHS is just like that too. But if we tried to get safer systems, the NHS would be saving money rather than buying more expensive stuff. And there's, there's no doubt that doing the kind of um, big data analysis that, that is being done by, by these companies finds some very interesting correlations. But that ought to be the starting point for research, not the end point. Well, there are two things I'd like to say about big data. One is, is the data you're collecting reliable? Because the evidence I've shown you in, the, in my labs, it isn't that reliable. And the other is, why don't we collect data on the use of systems, not just clinical data? <clears throat> the reason we're collecting clinical data is because Big Pharma wants to sell targeted drugs individualised to each patient, which is fantastic, but it will make money. If we were collecting data on the way systems were used and the errors they have, we'd be able to pick up things like WannaCry and we'd be able to pick up other bugs and get them fixed. But people aren't doing that. Yeah, I'm sorry, no, nobody else is going to be able to hear you. So, 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 so the microphone's going back. Yeah, Thank the microphone's you. back then. Take, take, take it up for another, another question. Thanks. Yes, um, just following on from uh, that, that previous question that mentioned AI, um, I, I heard one of your previous lectures where you said that um, bug-free software could be written if the right... Um, system was followed and the right um, programming languages <coughs> were used. Is there any future in developing AI systems in order to 
um, not to test the software, because I recognise that doesn't work, but to evaluate the software to check whether the software as written um, will give rise to problems. Um, in, interesting, interesting question. You, you, can, you don't need to, to use AI, firstly. You can, you can write a lot of tools that help people to program better and that analyse software to find um, defects or, or to prove what the properties of the software are. There are lots of such tools that exist. Uh, unfortunately, they require that people are very disciplined in the way they write their software, and most people don't write the software that way and therefore don't use the tools. The... The fastest moving bit of artificial intelligence at the moment is machine learning. And the, the neural net technology that is at, at the heart of that, um, it, it's an open research question as to whether we will ever be able to provide high assurance that it is actually performing correctly. Um, the, the researchers don't know how to do that. There's a recent report from the Royal Society which lists it as one of their unsolved research problems. Um, another one of their unsolved research problems for, for AI systems is, is showing the cybersecurity of such, such systems. Hmm. So um, I, I don't... In, increasingly, uh, professional computer scientists don't talk about AI anymore because it's, it's a basket of different techniques with different capabilities and, and different um, weaknesses and, and therefore you, you need to start being much more specific about, about what the technology is you're talking about and what it can or can't do. There's a danger that you know, politicians talk about AI as if it was fairy dust you could sprinkle mm -hmm. on things and make problems go away. So there's a, a completely different sort of answer. Uh, all of us, we make errors because we're not noticing what we're doing. If we knew we were making an error, we wouldn't do it. Uh, yesterday, I was making myself a cup of coffee, spooned out the coffee into the cafetiere, filled it up with water, and it was empty. I put the coffee into my coffee mug instead. Right? <laughs> now, if I'd seen myself doing it, I wouldn't have done it. Right? And it's a bit embarrassing to admit I can make such a stupid mistake. But we make mistakes like this the whole time. And thankfully, most of the time, it doesn't matter or hurt anybody else. The key rule for resilience is you need somebody else to watch what you're doing. So if my wife had been there, you know, I'm sort of caught up, you know, I've got to make coffee and I'm chatting to the cat or whatever, my wife say, put the coffee in the cafetiere. And the same in uh, operating theatre. The surgeon's doing something complicated and the patient might be having trouble and the surgeon doesn't notice because they've got tunnel vision and they start making errors and they need a nurse to say, uh, right, another pair of eyes reduces the error rate. That's standard stuff. Uh, formal methods and computer science, AI, they're all different eyes on the same problem. If you just have one person programming a medical device, they will make mistakes and not know it. So use, they should use code review. They should get somebody else to look, ask some questions. Or they can use formal methods, which work in a completely different way to what we do. So they will see problems we don't see. And AI, again, whether it's any good in its own right, it's a different pair of eyes that will be able to spot problems. So I think AI is a good idea if it's used to help a team. But if we just rely on the AI, we will end up with the AI making mistakes it can't notice either. And there's some questions further back. 
I really enjoyed your lecture, but I, I thought the final screen about the um, public inquiries into the deaths was, was uh, m mistaken in that I thought a better comparison would be something like the, the number of car deaths on the road. And, and I thought maybe it might be an interesting comparison for you for, for something like, you know, um, was it a Toyota or something where people's foot mm. kept slipping on mm. the accelerator and causing crashes? Well, and that's what Toyota said. And it, it took years and years of, of more and more crashes before it, it was actually accepted and they redesigned it. And it's, uh, I wonder if you'd looked at something like car use as opposed to car design, which is obviously a different regulation regime completely. Mm. But, but user into input into car use as a, as a comparable uh, situation. Yeah, I think cars are an inspiration for us. Uh, in the 1960s, cars were dangerous, but it was accepted. You know, this is what happens. And uh, cars were sold because they looked like rockets and they were fast and everything else. And Ralph Nader then did an expose of the car industry. Uh, he wrote a book called Unsafe at Any Speed. And the result of him coming up with stories, like we have come up with stories, is the car industry has changed. In the 1960s, General Motors and the rest of them said things like, drivers have accidents, not our problem. And now manufacturers are saying, drivers have accidents, therefore we must make safer cars. That's a complete change. And now it's starting to get messed up because cars are getting computerised and you know, sort of driverless cars. There's a whole other story about the IP in cars and liability. You know, whose fault is it when you have a, a computerised car crashing? But the last 50 years or so, cars have become enormously safer. I've got a personal experience with this. The day before we got married, my son Isaac had a car accident. And this is interesting. When I say Isaac had a car accident, the way we talk about accidents, I'm immediately sounding like I'm blaming Isaac. An accident happened while Isaac was in the car, would be a better way of putting it. And he had an offset head-on collision like this, probably 120 miles an hour. 50 years ago, everybody would have died. And three people got out of those cars uninjured because of airbags, seatbelts, ABS brakes, crumple zones, and so on. Cars have been designed knowing that drivers make mistakes, so cars have to be safer. I would like medical software to be designed on the basis that shit happens. Let's make the software better. And we have given lots of examples. It could be made a lot better. So thanks for bringing up the car, car example. Yeah. Thank you both for a fantastic lecture. As a medical student, so hopefully a future healthcare professional who ultimately is the end user of these products, is there room for us to have early computer literacy in how to solve these problems or to recognize them, alternatively a national bug system to kind of record all of these medical problems. Let, let me just answer that while, while Harold's thinking about, about how he wants <laughs> So it. I'm going to come up with a really good answer in a moment. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, the first thing to remember is that, that you're a real professional and that therefore if you want any insight into computer systems or any programming done, get another professional who's as skilled at their job as you are at yours. Um, some years ago, ooh, too, too, too long ago now, um, I, was, I was phoned up by an anaesthetist who said he was organising a conference for anaesthetists and he wanted me to come along and explain to them how to write safe software. And I said, it's a strange thing to want at an anaesthetist conference. 
And he said, oh, no, no, no. No, we all um, program software on our, on our computers at home and we, and we bring it in and we, we connect things up to patients because it, it makes our job so much, so much better. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we're having a certain number of um, problems with, uh, <laughs> with the patients and their lawyers. And, and consequently, we'd, we'd like you to explain to us, you know, we know you're an expert in safety-critical software, how, how to, to do that. And he was, he, he, he was a real anaesthetist. He was phoning me up from the recovery room in the hospital while he was having this, this conversation. And he was outraged when I said to him, you know, suppose I asked you to come on to a computer conference and teach me how to be an, an anaesthetist in, in a, a half-hour or one-hour lecture. Would, would, you, would you be up for doing that? And he did not see that that was the equivalent of what he was trying to do. So that's, that's my, my answer. Firstly, you know, don't believe that because you do stuff at home or, you know, you may even be a real, real whiz at programming your, your computer from, from school or university. Don't, don't for a moment make the, think that it makes you competent to do anything that's safety critical because it absolutely doesn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, gave you a chance to think. A, a, good, a good transition there is uh, just because somebody's a drug addict doesn't mean they, they would be make a good anaesthetist. Uh, <laughs> I hope you will be a good clinician. I'm sure you will be. And I would like the programmers and developers to be good computer scientists and do a good job. So between you, you make a good team, as we were talking about earlier. The thing I'd like you to remember from this lecture, if you ever end up in court you should be telling your defence, prove that the computer didn't contribute to the mistake that was made. And at the moment, the manufacturers cannot do that because they're not collecting the data. And even if they do collect the data, it turns out to be proprietary and you've got to use the manufacturer to analyse their own data. The system at the moment is set up against you. Eventually, stuff will go wrong. And the law at the moment is the computer systems worked correctly. Or I should say that a bit more precisely. The presumption in criminal law and the Criminal Justice Act 2013 is at the material time, IT is presumed to be correct. Because the courts don't want to look at it. Because they, they, you know, they're, they're out of their depth as well. Get, get your lawyer to, to talk, talk to Harold about being an expert witness and he'll get, get you off and if, <laughs> if it really wasn't your, your mistake, if, if you were trapped into it. More questions? Microphone on its way. This is going to have to be the last one. Many thanks to both of you for an excellent lecture. I was profoundly shocked by what you said. Uh, there are just two questions I wanted to ask. Do you know whether in the other countries, such as the United States or Germany or Switzerland, that are making checks, in fact, on their computer systems and their um, medical services, and secondly, do, does the um, Minister of Health and the parliamentary uh, spokesman of the other opposition parties, are they aware of any of this uh, work or research that you've been doing? Um, the answer to the first question is, is that the, the American National Academy of Sciences has the same concerns that we have and have published them in, in um, papers that, that they you know, report that they've done the reference, is, again, is in the, in the transcript. So the, the problems exist internationally, and, and the computer scientists certainly are concerned about the problems everywhere. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're not getting at the NHS. This is an international problem. The NHS is caught up in a, in a world problem. Yeah. Everybody's excited by computers, and they rush in computers to solve problems, and they don't do a very good job. Are um, the politicians aware? I have tried talking to them, and I don't think they are aware, because uh, the, uh, there's firefighting, which is important, I suppose, but... The, ma the manufacturers want to sell stuff, and buying more stuff is being promoted as the solution to where we are. So the NHS wants to go paperless, and it's got to buy in computers to send email and so on. Uh, and where is the evidence that, that improves things? Two weeks ago, uh, the Welsh NHS systems all crashed, and for about 24 hours, nobody could do anything at all. Now, is that an improvement over paper? <laughs> it's not completely obvious, is it? But people are not doing the evaluations. Uh, I, like, I like my iWatch. It's the most expensive watch I've ever had, and it's fantastic. And yet, half the time, I have to charge the battery so I can't tell the time at night. You know, so for me as an individual, that doesn't matter. But if this was a medical device, it would not be good enough. And that's the fundamental problem. This wasn't designed. Most software was not designed to be used safely in a hospital. Thank you very much for your questions and discussion. That's been really helpful. Thank you very much. <laughs>